Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How are we doing at the 11 a.m.? You guys good? You feeling it? Uh, what time is it? It's 9 a.m. I, I, whatever. You're, every time we have multiples, I get lost at where I'm at in the weekend. So whoever you are, whatever service this is, uh, we're glad that you're with us. Uh, my name is Bryant, lead pastor here. That was an incredible start. Um, but so glad you're with us. Uh, we talk all the time about this being an alternative to church as usual. If you're brand new with this, it just means that this is a growing multi-ethnic, multicultural multiracial, socioeconomically diverse movement where everybody is invited in. And so our hope is that you experience that today. Um, I just want to invite in everybody listening via unfiltered radio. I can't ever remember the call stations but all over the state. If you're watching us, so glad um, you're with us. And so here's, here's really what I want to talk about for a couple minutes. Um, that is a really interesting dynamic. And for some of you, this has been anything but your experience with the church. And I'll explain what I mean in just a second. But here's the thing that is true about human nature. This is just all human beings. And this doesn't matter about faith. This is just a human thing, is that we all wonder, we all question, and we all doubt. Like, we all wonder about why certain things happen. And specifically, if you believe in God, why God will allow certain things. Uh, We all question. We question what's true and sometimes whether we understand what's true. And this is just natural. We all doubt. And a lot of times even we doubt ourselves. But we all question. We all wonder. We all doubt. And it just makes sense because this is a human thing that all of that gets translated in terms of how we think about God. But here's the thing that's crazy. And this has been the experience already of so many people this weekend. And I guarantee there's a lot of people on radio and in the house that are going to resonate with this is that when it comes to like the church or Christianity or other Christians, we seem at some moment so unbelievably threatened by people's honest questions and wondering and doubt. In fact, for some of you, your story was like at 16, you started to pose some questions and somebody was just shutting you down, like just have faith and just believe. And you kind of felt like you needed to walk the other direction because you weren't accepted because you were simply just unearthing the human, just wondering and questions and doubts that we all have. 
about life and about faith and about God. And then in fact, if I were to hear your story, you'd probably go, hey, by the way, I had some unbelievably good reasons to wonder and question and doubt. Whether it was the hypocrisy that I experienced from other Christians or whether it was the bad church experience that you had or whether it was kind of this unintellectual, anti-science, anti-psychology kind of view of faith, which by the way, doesn't exist. And you're like, I just don't know if I can, I, I don't know if I can follow this any longer. It was maybe walking through a decade of unanswered prayers and feeling like God didn't even know your name or it was some suffering or really difficult times you walked through that didn't reconcile with what you thought about God. And it just got to the point of like, I don't know if I can follow this any longer. And so whether it was unanswered prayer or suffering or unanswered questions about the Bible, you just got to the place to go, listen, I almost wanna follow, but I just feel like I can't. And yet in so many circles, I've just gotten shut down for just even posing the questions. And so I wanna, what I wanna tell you for a couple minutes this morning is this, you are not alone. And there is a place for you. And whether you've ever understood it or heard it before, literally the message of the launch of the Christian movement was all made up of disbelievers and doubters and every single one of them abandoned faith and then somehow re-engaged again. It is literally the story of our movement. Why the church is so threatened by it, I don't know and don't understand. And really here's what it comes down to. Maybe you've never heard this term, but it's super popular culturally. There's a term for it called deconstruction where basically we look at life or faith and we just create so many questions and doubts that we kind of tear it down and tear it apart to go, is this really true and do I really believe it? We deconstruct it. And there's really, there's three ways that we deconstruct. We believe, but we are just still holding on to a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. And honestly, I've had several of those seasons in my life where I've never abandoned faith, but I've continued to follow with all my doubts and questions. That's the first form of deconstruction. The second is this, is where you believe, but you're just done with organized religion, done with the church. In fact, maybe that's some of you today, it's a miracle that you're here. It's because you had a mother-in-law that bribed you, like you can't get brunch unless you come, and it was shady, but you're here, but whatever it takes. But you're just like, I'm done. I, I, I can't do it anymore because of what I've seen or, or whatever. And then the third form of deconstruction is basically, I just don't believe. I just can't hold to this anymore. And so what I wanna tell you in a few moments is this, is that Easter, which is really the, the story of the launch of the Christian movement or Christianity, is the reason that you should reconsider reconstructing your faith. And, and here's one of the tensions that all of us experience, and I know this even personally, but a lot of times when we deconstruct our faith, we don't ever reconstruct anything back in its place. And so we walk away from one thing, but what we've traded it in for, it really hasn't brought what we thought it would bring. There's still a restlessness in our soul. And so I just, for a couple minutes, want to share the story of Easter. And the story of Easter really is a deconstruction story condensed over a weekend. Normally it's about a decade for some of us, over a weekend, where everybody abandoned faith, everybody left, and then somehow they re-engaged. And the somehow was because of one singular hinge event that changed everything. And that event was the resurrection. Now, if you knew the whole church thing, I just spoiled the end of the story, so that's my bad. But th that's why we're here. There's a resurrection. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. And that event changed everything. And listen, this is so important. And you should consider reconstructing your faith not because you have decided to be unintellectual and ignore all your questions and wondering. But if a resurrection happened in history, it means it gives you the intellectual reason to continue to follow despite your doubts and your questions. You'll get warmed up, it's fine. 
I told last night, I don't know if this is actually true, but like the more you talk back and the louder you are, the shorter our preach. Uh, shorter our pre- I think that's probably a lie, but like, let's just go with it. So I, I don't preach to a silent crowd. I'd love you to bring it. I know if you grew up Baptist, that's way outside of your comfort zone, but like just do whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, but it's really interesting. Peter, one of the guys that was closest to Jesus, when Jesus is arrested and eventually he's gonna be tried and he's betrayed by Judas and he's led away to the high priest. Peter, who is incredibly close with Jesus, follows at a distance, hoping to not be recognized, but close enough to where he has eye contact with Jesus the entire night. And Peter is a guy that was like most firm in his faith, like some of us have been in certain seasons. In fact, Peter at one point says this, hey, Jesus, if everybody else leaves you, I'll go with you to prison and I'll go with you to death. Jesus, I'm never gonna abandon. And Jesus is like, nah, you'll leave too. You'll actually deny me and betray too. And the questions and the wonder, you're gonna get too much and you'll walk away. And it's funny because like uh, up until the very moment Jesus arrested, Peter has more bold faith maybe than anybody. Like when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, Peter's grabbing somebody's sword, trying to lop off the head of one of the soldiers, misses, gets the ear, like cuts his ear off. And Jesus is like, hey, Peter, you need to settle down. And then not many hours later, Peter finds his faith crumbling like a house of cards. And it's interesting, just real quick, because Peter really abandoned faith for the same reasons a lot of us did on that weekend. And the three reasons were really this, that there was a religious leader that had failed them. There was a movement or Christianity that no longer, um, really there was no longer anything to gain from it. And then the third thing was none of it made sense anymore. Like the first thing, a leader who had betrayed them, we don't really think of it in this, these terms, but when Peter knew that moment when it was, gonna, it was over and Jesus was gonna be crucified and this was gonna be the end of all of that because they didn't know how the story wrapped. In that moment, Jesus was nothing more than another wannabe prophet who had let them down. Because here's the thing that Jesus did that makes him different than any other leader of any other world religion. Jesus placed himself at the center of the message in the movement. Jesus said crazy things like this that either made him nuts or it made him the actual son of God. There's not really any middle ground when Jesus said, listen, I I want you to understand that I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. Not believe in a way, I'm telling you I am the way, you're looking at him which means Jesus placed himself at the center of the movement. So if there is no Jesus, there's no movement left. And then Jesus said ridiculous things like this. Hey, I'm not asking you to believe that there's resurrection in life. I'm telling you that I am the resurrection and I'm the life. I am the center of the message. And so unlike other religions where the leader can die and then they can take the teachings forward, Jesus didn't give that option because he made himself the teachings. He made himself the movement. And so the moment they understood that Jesus was gonna be crucified, movement over and just another leader who had failed them. And then the second thing is they walked away because it just, there was nothing to gain any longer. At one point there was crowds everywhere. They were popular. By the time Jesus is led away to be crucified, they are not popular any longer. They're next on the hit list. I mean, think of this. How in the world did this movement survive beyond Easter weekend? Because normally when you start a movement, go study it, every leader of a world religion starts a movement for one of three reasons, sex, money, power, maybe all three. The disciples got none of those things. There was no book deals to be had. They were not popular at any point. Even after the weekend, just about every single one of them suffered for what they believed and saw and they gave up their lives. And sometimes, sometimes you walk away from faith for really practical reasons. This just doesn't seem to benefit you anymore. 
And so Peter and all the rest were like, why would we continue to follow this when the leader is gone and there's nothing to gain? And then third thing, it just didn't make sense. The moment Peter recognizes that it's about to go bad and it's about to be over, everything they thought about God was ruined. Like sons of God don't die. Messiahs don't get crucified. It doesn't go down like this. And so for a lot of the same reasons that we do, just different application, every, you just need to know this, every single individual and follower of Jesus on Easter weekend lost their faith and disbelieved and doubted to the point that they were done with the whole thing. And then Peter, who's following at a distance the entire night is approached by a couple different people. Hey, I'm pretty sure you know Jesus. And Peter's like, I don't know him. He's approached again. They're not pretty sure we saw, no, I don't, I don't even know the guy. And then a middle school girl in a courtyard around a fire pit's like, no, I'm pretty sure that, I, I, I swear I don't know, get off my back, I don't know Jesus. And then there's this profound emotional moment where Peter recognizes that what Jesus predicted is exactly what had happened. And in verse 61, Luke records it in Luke 22 that the Lord turned. And because they were just close enough to make eye contact, he looked straight at Peter. And Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. And just real quick, because generally we interpret this as he wept bitterly because of so much shame and he let Jesus down. And there's a part of that. But what you need to know in this moment, I can't overstate this, he still had respect for Jesus. But in this moment, in his heart and mind, he believes that Jesus is not who Jesus said he was. The other reason that Peter weeps bitterly in this moment is because he recognizes that this is the loss of his faith and his belief in God in everything that he thought was true. Can, can I just say this real quick, because some of you will resonate. Sometimes walking away from faith is not an act of rebellion. Sometimes it's heartbreak. Sometimes it's, I, I wanted to hang on. I wanted to keep believing. I wanted to keep following. But because of what I've been faced with, because of the questions that I have, because of how I've been treated or whatever the issues are, like I, I just get to a place where I don't think I can follow any longer. And Peter on that weekend was not anxious to walk away the entire time. He's like, I, I wanna hold strong. I wanna hold on. I wanna continue to follow. And it got to the place where he knew it was gonna end for Jesus, that he knew he couldn't follow any longer. And Peter is heartbroken. And listen, I just wanna say this because this is really important if you grew up in an environment where you started to doubt and question and wonder and somebody said, you just need to have more faith. You, you, just, you just need to believe. Jesus never taught that version of faith in the New Testament. You can't just decide to have more faith in God. And if you do, it'll work for a while. And then like Peter, your faith will come crashing down like a house of cards because faith intellectual faith that Jesus teaches in the New Testament has to have an object. There has to be a reason. In fact, Jesus, to maybe to your surprise, never invites anybody to just have blind faith, to just believe. The worst answer we could give people in the church who have genuine, real human questions is go, just believe. Like, well, I want to, but could you answer my questions? Yeah, yeah, but I have these doubts. Would you just have faith? Okay, faith in what? I, these doubts are not gonna go away. Faith needs an object. Faith needs a reason. And can we just be fair to Peter for a second? At this moment on Easter weekend, Peter had no reason to continue to believe. Not until Jesus gave him a reason. And so it's why on Easter weekend, there are no heroes. There's no courageous followers. Nobody had any great faith. Nobody was expecting a resurrection. Nobody was waiting around going, this is the moment that it happens. They all disbelieved. They all doubted. They all walked away, which means there is a place for you. 
And maybe you know the story a couple days later, the women go to the tomb and they have no hope and no faith and no expectation. And Mark records it because there's several accounts of this historic event and these historic hours. And Mark says, as he's interviewing Peter, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. And I know that this is just, we understand this, but I just need to say it anyway. They go to anoint Jesus' body for obvious reasons because it was dead. And nobody expected that it was gonna be undead. And so they're going to anoint a dead body thinking the dead body is going to stay dead. And there's a secondary reason I say this every year, but I, I just, I'm reading a lot into the text, but I think it's true. This is the second time Jesus' body had been embalmed that weekend. The first time was by a group of men earlier in the weekend, fairly convinced the women are like, there's no way they did that right. We'll go back on Sunday and <laughs> tighten this thing up. So they come back again. You won't find that in the commentary, but I'm convinced very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, these women, and they asked each other, who's gonna roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And just one more note, just real quick. The stone at the entrance of the tomb, which was sealed, and it took a lot of effort. It was big, it was expensive. It was the most epic waste of time and money, maybe in history. Because religious leaders had more faith in Jesus' followers than Jesus' followers had in Jesus' followers. If you look at the account of their response, everybody left, everybody was cowering, everybody was afraid, everybody was terrified out of their mind, nobody believed, nobody had faith, everybody doubted, and this is so important, they were not willing to die for Jesus while Jesus was alive. They weren't gonna die for Jesus after Jesus was dead. And so the stone at the entrance, epic waste of time. They were not gonna go steal a body for what they knew was alive. But the women get there and they recognize that this massive stone, which they looked up and they saw the stone that was large, had been rolled away from the tomb. And then this is so important. This is gonna be a hinge moment and we'll recognize later that these women are the first to get there and recognize, even though they're not connecting the dots in the moment, that there is no body in this tomb. And Mark, as he's writing this, no doubt is going, okay, Peter, let's run over this one more time. Are you sure that's what happened? Are you sure it was, think harder. Are you sure Peter didn't get there before the women? Are you sure that John, are you positive they were the first to get there? And then when Peter verifies the story, Mark is like, I, I don't know what else to do. This is terrible fiction. Nobody is gonna believe this. And if you're trying to get a movement started to the first century that at this point is fledgling pretty badly, this is not how you write the story because in first century culture, women had no credibility. Women could not even be witnesses in court. And the fact that they would make up a story that would introduce women as the first to the empty tomb is ridiculous and nobody would believe it in the first century. And by the way, just side note, because this is so important. In a male-dominated patriarchal society, you should study this about the life of Jesus. From the very beginning of starting this new movement, Jesus elevated the status of women in that culture to say, you will have a central place in my movement for the rest of time. And by the way, the question of like, hey, can women preach? I mean, just newsflash, women have been preaching since Easter weekend when they were first to see the empty tomb and then go preach about it. That question was already answered 2,000 years ago. And so Mark's like, ah, I hate to write it, but I, I, I have to. And the only reason I'm writing that women were the first to get there is because women were the first to get there. 
And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. And this is the most unhelpful statement from an angel in history. In verse six, don't be alarmed. (laughs) It's like, well, I showed up looking for my friend who was dead and his dead body is not there and I'm talking to you, an angel. I have every reason in the world to be alarmed right now. He said, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene who was crucified. And of course, these women already knew that. And I don't want to go too deep into this, and I don't want to give too much explanation, but most of these people grew up watching rotting bodies on Roman crosses, and they knew, they knew the sights and the sounds of Roman crucifixion, which had been perfected by the Romans to torture people. And they knew all about Jesus' crucifixion because they were there to hear the sounds and to smell the smells of crucifixion and to experience everything that happened around them. And and what we miss often because we fast forward to the end of the story is when they were watching all of that, it was the death of their faith, it was the end of their faith and it was the end of this movement. And they had no hope. And then these words that cannot be overstated that changed all of history, the angel says to these women, he's risen. He is not here for a reason. And then, of course, you know that this is the moment where the music swells and the women finally, like, they remember, like, oh, yeah, he did say that. Like, he, he had been predicting for a while that he's going to rise from the dead, and this is the moment that it all comes together. Like, yeah, 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 that, that's right. Let us go back and tell everybody. That's actually not what happens. E- even as they're talking to an angel and there's nothing in the tomb, they're like, what's going on? Like what's happening? And they're still not connecting the dots. And then the angel says this to the women and this is so important, don't miss this. But go, even though you haven't figured it out yet, you will. I want you to go and I want you to tell Jesus' disciples. And oh, wait, 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 ladies, before you go, one more thing. I want you to go and I want you to let Peter know. I want, maybe you could pull him off to the side. Don't do it with everybody else around. But if you could go find Peter, I want you to have a conversation with Peter. And I want you to let Peter know. I know. And I'm here. In fact, he'll see me in Jerusalem and let him know that I did everything that I said I was going to do. And I just want to land on this moment for a second because there is a reason that the, the angel said, go find the disciples, but make sure that you specifically and you personally have a conversation with Peter. Because in that moment, it reveals God's heart for every disbeliever, every doubter, everybody who walked away, everybody who has wondered that you will never wonder outside of the reach of God's love and grace. And you will never doubt outside of the pursuit of God and his relationship with you. And in this moment, Jesus is saying through the angel to Peter, Peter, you may have abandoned me, but I will not abandon you. And come on. If doubters and skeptics and cynics and wonders and disbelievers and people that left for a decade, if they were out of the movement and somehow Jesus is like, I'm done with you, you just have to understand there would be no church and there would be no movement because those were the only people who were left on Easter weekend. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and they fled from the tomb and they're still trying to figure out what happened. And then Luke in his account records this when they get back to all the rest of the followers. And again, just quick pause. If you are trying to get people to believe a movement, you do not write this. And the women rush back and they're out of breath and they get ready to tell them. And after they tell them what they had seen and the fact they talked to an angel, here's how everybody responded. But they did not believe the women. 
Because their words, and this is where some of you are at right now, seem to them like nonsense. Because people don't rise from the dead. Which is why, I just want you to think about this for a second, it is so astonishing that any of these individuals could have reconstructed their faith and ever believed again. How in the world did that happen? Because everybody doubted, nobody believed, everybody left. In fact, let me give you a couple of reasons and at the end we'll tell you about this, but one of the things we do here is this environment called Starting Point, which is a place to, if you're curious, we just talk about a lot of these things and some of what I'm gonna talk about, we talk about in that environment if you want more information about it. But just consider this for a second. How in the world did that happen at the end of Easter weekend? Because here's what I'll tell you didn't launch Christianity. Faith could not have launched the Christian movement. Do you know what I mean by that? On Easter weekend, it was not a bunch of people who got together to go, okay, Jesus is dead, but we need to keep this movement alive, so let's just have faith. Jesus didn't allow that. He was the message. He was the movement. The resurrection and the life was dead, so there was nothing to have faith in. Faith did not start Christianity. Nobody had any faith. And second thing, a stolen body couldn't have created Christianity. As I already said, Every single one of Jesus' followers were scared out of their mind and nobody was willing to die for Jesus while Jesus was alive. Funniest story is Mark. Mark's another guy who's, I'm never gonna leave you, Jesus. I'm never gonna forsake you. In the garden the night Jesus betrayed, Mark's running out of there without any pants on. He's so afraid out of his mind. Like everybody left. Everybody was scared. And nobody was giving their life for Jesus while Jesus was alive. They're not giving their life for what they know now is a lie because Jesus is dead and then Listen, a made-up story couldn't have created Christianity for several reasons. You would not write women in as the first who gets in an empty tomb. Nobody in the first century would have believed that. You would have not written the leaders of the new movement as cowards and morons. Like one of them would have held true. One of them would have continued to follow. Somebody would have believed and had faith over that weekend. Nobody had any left. Nobody would make, make up that story if you want people to actually believe it. And then the, the other thing about a made-up story, and you wouldn't choose a bodily resurrection as part of that story. That's too easy to disprove. You can just go to the empty tomb. Josephus, a first century historian, would have wrote about it. Yeah, the body was in there. I don't know what they're all talking about. You wouldn't make bodily resurrection a part of the story. A made-up story, faith, a stolen body did not create Christianity. And then one more thing. This is so important because some of you, this is where you got lost maybe in a freshman English class. The Bible did not create Christianity. Just so you know, there was no the Bible as we know it until the fourth century. For hundreds of years, Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people believed that Jesus had resurrected in history and they had no Bible to refer to. Where's that at? I don't know. We just talked to people and they were there and they saw, in fact, 500 at one time. For hundreds of years, there was no the Bible. The Bible did not birth Christianity any more than your birth certificate birthed you. It is a documentation of what happened. And if nothing would have happened at the end of that weekend, everybody who had lost faith would have continued on their way to not have any faith for the rest of their life, to continue to doubt for the rest of their life. The only thing that changed anything is the fact that Jesus gave them a reason to believe and the reason was his bodily resurrection. And then people came along like Matthew to go, I gotta write about this. 
And then Mark interviewed and said, I've got to write about this in documents, too important. And then John came along to go, I was there, I saw the events. I mean, I will tell you detail for detail what happened. And then Luke investigated carefully and documented it and preserved it. And then Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament who didn't believe any of it and then believed Jesus rose from the dead. And then maybe the greatest apologetic or defense of a resurrection is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, thought at the beginning of Easter weekend that his brother should be committed, like institutionalized. He was crazy. And then how do you explain at the end of Easter weekend on the other side of that, James, the brother of Jesus, believed that his brother was his Lord and Savior and ended up giving his life, believing that Jesus, his brother, was his Messiah. I say this all the time from a a mentor of mine, but... It's just, it's worth repeating. If you have a sibling, I mean, just think about this for a second to realize how weighty this is. What what would it take for you to convince your sibling that you were the son of God? It would take a ton. James believed his brother was his Lord and Savior. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and Paul and others wrote, documented, preserved it. And most of them gave their lives, not for what they believed. People do that all the time, everywhere around the world every day. They gave their lives for what they say they saw a resurrected Jesus. And it's why Jesus finally shows up a few days later. And they're all, I mean, get that, they're all still huddled up. They're all still afraid. They're all still doubting. They're terrified out of their mind. And then Jesus does what is such a Jesus thing. He doesn't help the situation because they're terrified. They're in a room. They're all huddled. Like, what do we do from now? Everybody's after us. They'll probably crucify us next. And in the middle of all of their conversations and terrified talk, Jesus is just like, hey, what are you guys doing? And just shows up in the room. And, And now think about this for a second. Think about all the things that Jesus could have said to them. Like, if I'm Jesus, and good thing I'm not, if you're Jesus... If I had watched that weekend and I'm showing up in that room, I mean, I think the first thing I'm like, you guys are embarrassing. Are you serious? Like not a single one of you. I mean, I did mention this several times. Nobody could hang on to faith. Nobody could continue to believe. All of you doubted and wondered and walked away. In fact, I would have came and gone, hey, just so you know, this is the moment where I fire all of you. I'm starting a movement. You guys are not gonna work. Not a single one of you held on to faith. Jesus shows up in the room and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? And then if you had any question, Thomas, who got an unfortunate nickname for the rest of his life, is like, I, I, I hear everybody's talking and Peter's pretty convinced, but Jesus, I'm not gonna believe it unless I can get like up close and literally put my, my hands in, in the wounds and I know it's you. And again, think about how Jesus could have responded. Thomas, forget you. Are you serious? And I love this. I love the heart of Jesus. I, I This is what many of you never experienced when you questioned and wondered and doubted, maybe from the church or other Christians, but this is the heart of Jesus. He says to Thomas, Thomas, investigate as far as you need to investigate. And then he shows up to Peter after all this, and Peter is heaped in shame, and he's heartbroken, and it's the end of his faith, and Jesus shows up on a a beach to Peter and says, Peter, hey man, it's me. Do you love me? No, no, no. I, I know it doesn't look like it this weekend, but I do. No, no, but for real, do you love me? No, no, Jesus, I, I swear I do. 
I, I'm just gonna ask you one more time because I know it's been hard, but it's actually gonna get harder for you. I, Peter, are you sure you're with me? You, you sure you love me? And Peter, heartbroken, is like, I, God, I swear to you. And then Jesus does the unthinkable to the guy that didn't just walk away, the guy that was most adamant about, I don't even know Jesus. In an unbelievable turn of events, Jesus goes, okay, Peter, not only are you out, not only, am I kicking, not only am I not kicking you out of the movement, not only am I not done with you, Peter, I'm going to put you in charge of the entire movement, go. Because if disbelievers and doubters and questioners and deconstructionists were out, there would have been nobody left. And in these moments, not only does Jesus not condemn, Jesus gives them a reason to believe himself. And in that moment and not a moment before when they saw and were face to face with their resurrected savior, in that moment, the movement was born. And it is, think about it, it's the only explanation for why these cowards and runners, those who were terrified, didn't believe, no faith. It's the only explanation for why weeks later they would roll into the streets of Jerusalem and suddenly they are unafraid and they're talking in the face of the very people who crucified Jesus to go, hey, you guys killed the author of life. God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of it. You should repent. And by the way, I know where we were cowering and hiding in upper room apartments a few weeks ago. Now we are not afraid because this is just a natural out flow of following a leader who resurrected himself from the dead. Fear dissipates. There is nothing to be afraid of any longer. And they launched the movement that 2,000 years later, explain this, a third of the world connects Jesus as a Messiah, a Jewish carpenter from the ghetto who didn't travel more than 30 miles from his home, never wrote a book. 2,000 years later, his name would dominate the globe. That did not happen because of a stolen body. That did not happen because of a Bible. It didn't exist. That did not happen because they perpetuated some lie. That didn't even happen because of faith. They had no faith until Jesus gave them a reason to have faith. That only happened because at the end of that weekend, they saw their resurrected Lord and Savior and it changed everything. So in a few minutes, I just want to tell you this. I don't know where you're at. But the resurrection is the reason to consider reconstructing your faith. And it's the only reason. In fact, Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, as I referred to, actually said, without the resurrection, there's no reason to hold on to faith. And it doesn't mean that your doubts are not significant and your bad church experience or the version of Christianity that was, you were given that was, that was off or the unanswered prayers or the suffering that you've walked through that you can't make sense of. All of that is legitimate. You should wrestle with all of it. But it gives you an intellectual reason to follow in spite of. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, despite your bad church experience, despite your unanswered prayers, despite your unanswered questions, you can intellectually be honest to take the guy who predicted his own death and resurrection at his word. And if he pulled that off, you can follow in spite of, and you can follow with all of your doubts, questions, wondering, and objections. Because when Jesus walked out of the grave alive, Jesus validated everything about his life and death. In fact, Pete, Paul again came along to say he was a, a religious leader. He was in the religious system. It's so important. And then he left the religious system to follow Jesus. And he made a point, because some of you feel this, to make sure that you know that sometimes the religious system and Jesus are at odds. 
And then he gives us this clarifying invitation, and this is still the invitation 2,000 years later. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. I want you to fix your eyes on a resurrected Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, meaning he initiated it, he finished it with a resurrection that validated everything he said about his life and death. And if you fix your eyes on your doubts or on your wondering or on your question or on your experience, all of those things are legitimate. But the foundation of our faith is none of those things. The foundation of our faith is a resurrected savior. And so Paul says, if you ever have any hope of reconstructing your faith, it is to fix your eyes eyes on Jesus. And Paul would be the first to say, hey, listen, you can't just muster up belief in God. You can't just decide to have more faith in God. It doesn't work that way. That's dishonest. That's a faith that'll crumble like a house of cards. You need a reason. You need an object of that faith. And the object of your faith, the object for why you should reconsider is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. And come on, all of those guys in the first century, all of their questions didn't go away. Are you kidding me? Peter, James, Andrew, John, those guys suffered. Those guys experienced things that they couldn't even imagine. They watched the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. They were constantly going, God, what in the world are you doing? John's like, why am I exiled to an island? God, where are you at? And why are you not answering my prayer? And it's not that those things didn't matter to them. But again, they had a reason to continue to believe anyway. A resurrected savior overwhelmed all of their other objections. And they realized that despite all of our doubts, despite all of our questions, Our hope is Jesus. Our confidence is Jesus. Our faith is Jesus. And if you've ever been shut down by the church, and this is such a heart of mine, this is probably where I spend most of my time and most of my conversations. And a big part of how we're structured as a church is that we come together as followers of Jesus and we gather for strength and then we scatter for light and we are a church for the city and for the world and those who do not believe yet because we have all been there, we are all there and there is an equal footing at the foot of the cross. There's Jesus and everybody else. And the doubts and question and wondering, they're just natural, they're just human. Why are we so threatened about that? Our faith is not fragile. We don't need to be threatened. Bring all your questions, bring all your wondering, bring all of your doubting. And if the church ever shut you down and you felt like you were on the outside, I just want you to hear me this morning before you leave. You are in great company. You are not alone. It is the story of the launch of our movement. We should have a heart for people in that place more than anybody else. And come on, one more thing. God's response to you is gonna be the same response to Thomas. And God's response to you is gonna be the same response to Peter. And all the rest who abandoned and left and disbelieved. You may have abandoned me, I will not abandon you. You may have questioned me, I will not leave you. You may be doubting me right now. I am still for you. And I prove that by dying on the cross so that you could know in history that I am for you. And come on, not only will I not abandon you, because I'm a resurrected savior, the very thing sometimes that you equate to abandonment or your worst day, might actually be the epicenter of God's greatest activity in your life. 
Think about Easter weekend when they're staring at a tomb and they think all is done, all is lost. It's the end of everything. And they think this is the worst day in all of humanity. And they had no idea that they were staring at the symbol of the greatest day in all of history. Because when you serve a God of resurrection, he can resurrect anything. And it means your worst day because you serve that kind of savior may actually be the epicenter of God's greatest work. The thing that you're staring at right now that just looks like disappointment might actually be the thing that God is using to unleash divine destiny because that's what gods of resurrection do. The very thing that you're looking at and it just looks like death. It looks like the death of a marriage. It looks like the death of your hope. It looks like the death of a dream, the death of your identity, the death of your future. The very thing that looks like death might be God bringing something else to life because he is a God of resurrection. You cannot trust your interpretations. You cannot trust your circumstances. The very doubt that got you kicked out of the church might be the thing that God is actually delighting in and using as a doorway to move you to greater faith because what we often associate with abandonment isn't God's abandonment at all. It is a God of resurrection, working resurrection in your life because a God who walked out of a grave alive can bring in anything to life in your life. So as we end, I just want to encourage you because I resonate with this so much. And I always, I always want to give a couple minutes of just hope of what this means really practically for us and why Paul's invitation is so significant. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And if Jesus walked up out of a grave alive, and, and you can go study this for yourself because I, I believe more than anything else, it is anchored in history. And by the way, you're not staring at somebody who has all the questions figured out. I have way more questions than I did when I started following Jesus. And what keeps me anchored and rooted is not that I don't have doubts and don't have questions. It's just that Jesus in history walked up out of a grave alive, and so I have to follow that guy. And if Jesus walked out of a grave alive, it validated everything. And what it validated is this, and you can study it throughout the scriptures. Heaven's real. That everybody's gonna spend forever somewhere. That grace and forgiveness are possible no matter how far you've run or how much you've doubted, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad your past is, you will not be able to outrun the relentless grace and love of Jesus. And it means that your faith and that your hope, if Jesus rose from the dead, it's not in vain. And it means that one day Jesus is gonna do what Jesus said he would do. And that is he's gonna wipe away every tear. And one day he's gonna trample every single injustice. And one day, because this is what our soul longs for, whether we realize it or not, he's gonna shackle the enemy a final time that looks to steal, kill, and destroy. And in that moment, evil is going to bow down to the resurrected king. And in that moment, Jesus is going to set himself up as the ruling and reigning king for all of eternity. That's how the story ends. And when Jesus walked up out of the grave alive, it validated all of that. That when Jesus sets up his forever kingdom, that will be the moment where he will say no and he will end everything that our soul longs to see ended. The very things that caused us to question God. There will be a moment where Jesus says, as the resurrecting ruling king of all time, everything is going to bow down to me. There will be a day, it's going to be the end of abuse. 
There's going to be a day, it's going to be the end of depression. There's going to be a day where suicide will bow its knee to a resurrected Savior. There will be a day where all betrayal will be ended. And every broken relationship and every broken promise and every bit of racism and every dying dream and dying hope, all of the things that we wrestle and struggle with in our soul longs for it to be over. There will be a day with all of the power that is encompassed in somebody who defeated death who will say, no more. I am the ruling and reigning king. I hold the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so as we end, would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes just out of respect for other people who are in the room? And if you're watching and listening somewhere via radio, I wanna invite you into this moment. And I just wanna give three invitations and they are very simple and succinct because that's all that's needed. And the first category is for, for those that, man, you had some version of faith and you've walked away. And maybe you walked away just because there's so many things that just overwhelmed what was actually central to your faith. I mean, maybe the reality is you actually constructed your faith on the wrong foundation. And it wasn't Jesus. And this is the moment. And the prayer for you is if you had faith and walked away, it's just this. I want my faith back. And if that's you with nobody looking around, I'm just gonna give you five seconds. Just lift up your hand if that's your prayer in this moment. God, I want my faith back. Yeah, yeah. Second invitation is this. Where you believe you're following Jesus, but man, there's so many moments you're maybe teetering on the edge because the doubts and the questions seem oh, so overwhelming. And your prayer in this moment is simple, but I think it is the prayer to fix your eyes on Jesus and to simply declare, God, help me to hold on. In light of what you've done in history, help me to hold on. And if that's you, nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand real quick? That, that's my prayer in this moment. God, help me to hold on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then final invitation for some of you, this is the moment where you would go for the first time and you were not expecting this. In fact, you maybe have been resisting this and there's something in this moment that says it's true and that's not good communication. We believe that's the spirit of God. And you would maybe to your surprise in this moment say, I believe. And Jesus couldn't have been clear when he said this, I am the resurrection and the life and the one who believes in me will live. It is simply believing, not in yourself and your ability to earn your way to God, but what God has done for you, that he came through Jesus, lived the perfect life you couldn't, died the death we all should have died for our sin, past, present, and future, and then he got up out of a grave three days later. And now, by simply declaring your belief and trust in him, the scripture says that he will save you, he will forgive you, you become a son and daughter of God. So if that's you, I wanna lead you in this prayer, whether you're online or in the house. The prayer doesn't save you, I just wanna give you words to the declaration of your heart right now where you're at, pray this with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you came to earth and lived the perfect life that I couldn't. And I believe that you died on the cross from my sin. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And right now, I'm not believing in my ability to get to you or earn my way to you. I'm believing in what you did for me. Jesus, save me from my sin, rescue me. Make me a son and daughter of God. And with nobody looking around, if that's you in this moment, like there's been all weekend long, would you just lift up your hand to go, this is the moment that I declared personally, I believe I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. Yeah, just get it up high for just a second if you would. Yeah, come on. Yeah, 
And if you just leave it for a second, we wanna put a card in your hand and you don't have to do anything with it. But if you choose to, I'd love for you to fill out that card and take it to the info center outside. We'd love to just give you information about this journey. But one more time, if that's you, would you just lift up your hand and just keep it there for just a second to go, this is the moment personally where I believe and I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that in this moment you are doing what you've been doing for 2,000 years, saving, redeeming, moving people from darkness to light. We celebrate what you've done in this moment and we declare all of this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. This is a tradition here um, and it's meaningful. Would you stand and would you as loud as you can celebrate those who made life-altering decisions today? You do a little bit better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.